Good morning, Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders on a much cooler Saturday morning. Um, I'm feeling a little bit under the weather. I'm thinking it's probably seasonal allergies. I usually get hit right around the fall, but unfortunately you wouldn't even know it was fall around here because our temperatures hit the 90s again. We had another mini heat wave, uh, two of them to start the school year. My classroom is not air conditioned and it was pretty brutal, especially when you get a bunch of sweaty bodies in there. So slept a little late this morning, so we're going to try to get this podcast done before I feed some spiders and probably take another nap. So to start things off, I'm going to go back to last week's episode in which we were talking about keeping fossorial species as terrestrials, and I got an email by Bill Miner who brought up a really good point. Um, he basically said, just listen to the latest podcast, which is always great. I just wanted to comment that there is a third option that works well for me when I want to give my diggers enough substrate to make them happy, but also want to see them. I know you've probably done this too, but thought I would mention anyway, I think that a well-placed starter burrow can really create the best of both worlds. I always pick a corner for the burrow and place a hide above the starter hole so they are encouraged to dig next to the wall. That way, they get to sit in their hole and I get to see them as well and we are both happy. Bill could not agree more with you. Um, This is something actually I do with mine all the time. And like you said, it works more often than not. What you do is you put your starter burrow, you dig it ahead of time, and then put the piece of cork bark over top of it. And I think this is the part that some people don't do. And then they're, you know, kind of frustrated when the spider doesn't adapt their starter burrow for its home. That's because it's, you know, pretty much a crapshoot at that point if you don't give it something to go under initially where it's going to start digging. Sometimes they even climb up and they sit up in a corner. So what you do is you put the cork bark over it. Now, granted, the cork bark is probably only going to be used for a week before they start burrowing, but it does help give them a place to hide when they're first put into the container. And what will happen more often than not is... To get away from you, they're going to go into that little makeshift hide you made and then find, oh, there's already a a hole here. Well, start digging here. And then they start digging right there down the side of the enclosure. So uh, great advice and something for anybody that's looking to keep fossorials, a great trick that has worked well for me. And it sounds like Bill as well. Another trick you can use, and I've only done this once in the past and it worked really well and I just didn't go through the hassle of it, but I know some people use it and it works great, is if you're using a larger container, you take a smaller plastic container, usually uh, Tupperware or Sterilite and you flip it upside down and put it in the center of that container and I would encourage people to use silicone or something to glue it to the bottom because you don't want the spider to be able to get under there lift it up and get trapped but then all you do is fill around that with dirt so it takes up a big chunk of the center of the enclosure that would usually just be dirt where the spider could dig a hole in and kind of hide and that encourages the spider to dig around it so what you'll usually get is kind of like an ant farm type scenario where you get tunnels around that inner piece of plastic that you put in that inner container and it usually keeps them very very visible and I did do that with I believe it was a seed darlingi a while back it ended up being a male so I wasted all this time rehousing it and it, it molted out the next one and was a mature male but the tunnels it, it did around there was just uh, it was unbelievable and you could see everything so a couple tricks again for people who do want to see them because I do I really do understand people getting into the hobby that get these beautiful spiders and then they realize that I'm never going to see them. You get the, you know, the quintessential pet hole. So I get wanting to see them more, but I do feel like they need to feel secure and you can't do that with shallow substrates. So using some of these tricks to encourage them to burrow where you want them to burrow so that you can still see them. I've seen people do things too where they want them to feel completely secure at all times. So what they do is use some Velcro and a piece of, you know, cardboard or a piece of wood and put it over the 
the side where the burrow is so that they don't feel exposed and then they can just rip that little piece right off and see them. I've seen it done with our boreals as well. So just some tips and things that you can try out if you do have fossorial species and you're looking to rehouse them and you want to see them. Those work great. In other Tom's Big Spiders news, Buzzsprout, the service that I use to produce the podcast, announced last week that they are now enabling the use of chapters in the podcast, which um, for me I'm very excited about because a lot of these episodes aren't just one topic, and it's kind of annoyed me that I can't, you know, even for personal just editing and going through and making sure they're, they're clean, it's tough sometimes to figure out where one topic stops and the other one starts. And I'm guessing for some people out there, there might be things they don't want to listen to right now, and they want to skip to something that's more interesting. So if there's three topics, they might want the third. So hopefully, you know, let me know how this works. I haven't tried it out yet myself. I, I mean, I, I can see it on the back end when I add them, so it, it's pretty obvious where the chapters are to me. But for those of you that do use the chapters, let me know how it works out because I'm kind of hoping this will make it a little easier for people to access information more quickly. And personally, I've kind of tried to shy away from, you know, the question and answer stuff recently only because it's tough for people to jump around to the stuff that's actually pertinent to them. And I think this will make it a lot easier and make these a lot more accessible to people who are looking for specific details or information. That's the one thing I think that the website and the YouTube channel has over the podcast is that, you know, with the website, you can scan right down and find the piece of information you need. With the YouTube channels, obviously, I make videos that are centered around a certain topic usually and when I don't it's very easy to skip around the video and see visually you know visual cues as to when I'm changing up but what I'm talking about podcast a little more different but hopefully these will help that out so today we're going to talk a little bit about hybridization and the reason why we're talking about hybridization is unfortunately with the latest uh, ruling on Pisolotheria Sri Lankan Pisolotheria species I think it's got a lot of people nervous and I had somebody email me and with a message that was really kind of confounding and scary. And basically, it came down to this gentleman's idea was now that it was going to be more difficult to get, you know, certain species of Pisolotheria because they're not allowed to be sold over state boundaries and graded their ways around it as far as gifting and things of that nature and, and lending out mails and breeding loans and stuff of that nature. But it's going to be more difficult, and I think a lot of people are worried about it and we're not sure what it's going to look like or how it's truly going to impact the hobby. But he came forward with an idea, and he said, well, the way I see it now, I've got, you know, a couple of this species, a couple of this species, and it might make sense to just start breeding them together so I can have, you know, maybe a hybrid of one of these. So this will make hybridization much more popular, I think, because now people aren't going to be able to get the males they need for certain females and vice versa. So what they're going to do is just breed them together. And he goes, so this will be cool because we'll have, like, our own hobby versions of all these. I I was shocked, and this was it was posed to me like, and it was a longer, lengthier email, and it, it, I was going to read the whole thing, but it's long and it kind of meanders a little bit. But I couldn't. I, I immediately went to I did an article on tarantula hybridization on my tarantula controversies not that long ago, and I sent him a link to it, and I tried to explain why this is absolutely the worst thing you could do in this situation, and exactly what I was talking about when I wrote this article about the fact that one day we could find ourselves in a situation where the only stock we have of certain spiders is polluted, which would be horrific, because then we don't have the actual pure species. So, Again, the the hybridization thing comes up a lot, and I think more often than not, thankfully, 
It's people just getting into the hobby that, again, we talked about last week about people being trolls and people that just don't have the information they need yet. And I think people getting in the hobby, they don't understand that, A, important thing to consider, when you're talking about species of tarantulas, we're not talking about breeds like dogs. Because I think a lot of people come from keeping you know, the domestic pets like dogs and cats, and there's different breeds and different colors, and who cares if you mix them all up? I mean, I have... Four dogs right now, we're pretty sure every single one of them is some type of mix. I have three of them or some type of pit mix. One of them might not even be a pit. They just slap pit on everything. And then I have poor Molly, who's the odd one out, the Meredith Munster of the house, who is probably a golden retriever yellow lab cross. So all my dogs are crossed. Nobody cares. No big thing. I love them all to death. That's not the same as far as spiders are concerned. So mixing dogs may pollute the lineage as far as breeds. So if you have a registered purebred and you mix it with something else, obviously the animal, unless you get into the whole designer dogs, labradoodles, and things of that nature, most cases you're going to have a mutt, which is fine. That doesn't hurt anything, and most people are quite content to have mutts. I love mutts, so there's no issue there. But I think what happens is people coming into the hobby see these tarantulas and all these different pretty colors and just assume that you can mix and match and get like, I don't know, a a Canthoscuria geniculata with an OBT and get something that's orange with black stripes, a little Halloween spider. It'd be amazing. It doesn't work that way. And even when you talk about spiders from the same genus, you're not able, you should not mix them. Can they breed? Yes, we've already proven that. And I do get the other thing I get from people quite a bit who are looking to hybridize their tarantulas is I just want to see if it will work. And that's a really bad way to go at it because we already know that in most cases or many cases it will work. So there's nothing to be gleaned from that. This, this isn't this, like something that we're going to get this huge, oh my gosh, if you breed a, a B. Voggins with a B. albopelosum, it, it works. You get babies. We know this, but there's enough of them proliferating the hobby right now. We don't need any more. So that's, there's nothing to be gleaned from that. But again, it's that somebody that just got into the hobby that really, and the good news is, in most cases, when I encounter these people, they've done no breeding. They have no idea what it entails. They don't even know what a mature male looks like. And again, I'm not making fun. It's just that's the level they're at. So most of them, when I explain what's going on or give them a link to my article and say, please let me know if you have any questions, come away with going, oh, I totally get it now. But there's always that oddball out there that wants to do some type of Frankensteinian experimentation of breeding different species. And they always say the same thing. I mean, I wouldn't sell them or anything. Or I would sell them. I would just keep them to myself. Well, some of the species they're talking about breeding, they have so many babies. What are you going to do with several hundred hybridized babies? It's just, it doesn't make any sense. You're not going to keep them. You're probably going to sell them. You're probably going to pick whatever they look most like and sell them as that. Even if you sell them as hybridized specimens, the people that you're giving them to aren't going to necessarily know what that means. They may try to breed. It's just not a good situation. And and in that Tarantula Controversies article, I tried to touch upon some of the ones like the B. albopelosums, which we now know that if you want a pure one, they generally sell the ones from Nicaragua. But the ones we have that people refer to as hobby farm are often hybridized between a Voggins and a B. albopelosum. There was the Hesterocrates, Gigas, Hercules, um, Iteri, I don't know if I pronounced that right, Iteri that uh, have all been sold as one another and probably hybridized. So it happens quite a bit by accident. And again, it's you do, you assume when you buy an H Gigas that you're getting an H Gigas, and then you buy from somebody else, and you find out later on that maybe that wasn't an H Gigas. Responsible thing to do is not breed it, but some people never figure it out. They pair them, they move on, and there we go. We've got a polluted bloodline in the hobby. And does it happen 
a lot a lot of people that are arguing against the hybridization will say that it happens more often than we think and i think that's the honest to god truth i think there's it's not rampant, but I think it happens enough so that we have probably polluted some of our bloodlines. And that's kind of sad because now we have this new Pisolotheria situation where we have five species, the Sri Lankan species, that we are no longer able to sell across state lines. And it becomes an issue because now more than ever, we need clean bloodlines. Because of this new law, we will not be pulling in any more wild-caught specimens, which I'm totally okay with. But that means we have to look to specimens we have in the United States to keep these species going, to keep them in the hobby. And with some of these strictures that have been put on us by this new ruling, it makes it a little more difficult. It's not like now if I decide, like back in the day, if I decide I'm gonna, uh, I've got a Pisolotheria, say, fasciata, and she's a juvenile, and I'm thinking, you know what, I love this spider, I'm going to breed her when she gets a little older. What I'll sometimes do is, you know, hop on, you know, fear not tarantulas and order a couple of them and get them in and raise them up and hope I get a male out of it. That's a little more difficult now. I can't just hop online and buy spiders from different, you know, obviously different stock from different people because it's very easy before anybody looking to breed. If you want to get different stock, a lot of times you can bebop around and buy them from different people and figure out, you know, again, keep in mind that a lot of people will raise a species and sell it to several different vendors. So you never quite know, but it's, it was a lot easier to get different blood into your collection. That's being made more difficult now. Now, say the person that emailed me decides to go, all right, you know what? I have some Vitata. I have some Ornata. I'm going to try mixing and matching some of these things and then tries to sell them. Now we've polluted the, the bloodline we have, which is already shrunk considerably. So maybe it just impacts that state. Maybe he gets a mature male. And somebody goes, hey, I'm looking for a mature, you know, male P. Vitata. And he's like, well, I got this thing here that's half Vitata. Yeah, yeah, I got one. Now that's spread to another state. That could be an absolute debacle. And we're talking here. And I know, it, again, I, I'd never like to be a drama queen about this or drama king. And I never like to be an alarmist. But this is a huge situation in which we are dealing with animals that are suffering massive habitat loss where they come from. Sri Lanka, I know if you read the report, it says that Sri Lanka is starting to do stuff about it, but it might be too little too late at this point. And they're still losing massive swaths of habitat because of deforestation. So you are very likely holding on to animals that may not exist in the wild in the next, you know, 30, 40 years, maybe even less, depending on the rate this is going, unless they adapt to, you know, an urban environment. And there are signs that some of these specimens are starting to like live in houses and things of that nature, but that's, that's no way for them to live. We're dealing with animals that at some point may not exist in the wild. Personally, I want to know I have the actual animal and not some type of hybrid between two. We want to keep those pure to keep them alive in the hobby. I know that's one of the biggest battle cries we've had since this piece of Letheria ruling has come out, that people are like, we are kind of the stewards of keeping these animals alive and around and pure. The hobby, that was our biggest complaint, was that they seem to be penalizing the hobby with some of this new legislation and in fact, we are the ones that actually value these animals and care for them and breed them and keep these populations going. And by limiting our ability to sell them, they are in many ways limiting our ability to conserve them. And I do believe to a point that is the case. And if we start hybridizing at this point, this is exactly the juncture I was talking about where we may find ourselves in a position 
where it's more difficult to get these species. More countries may start closing down their borders to exportation of their species. I mean, I'm, I, I want to be optimistic about what's going on now, but it seems like some other countries are whispering now about, hey, let's start controlling our populations of tarantulas, which if they, you know, if they conserve them or if they kind of do what Mexico did and conserve them and have places that actually breed and produce them and they control what goes out of the country, I'm okay with that. Again, that's ensuring they're alive in the wild and ensuring that the hobby is fed. I don't mind spending more money for animals that are being taken care of correctly in their home countries. But should other countries start to do this and more species end up being impacted by this type of legislation, meaning we're not able to sell them across state borders, now it's more, even more imperative than it was when I wrote that article that we make sure we keep the bloodlines pure. So again, I get why people are so enamored with the idea of mixing things with other animals you mix things for colors you know that's just how they do things we were as humans we seem to not just appreciate animals for what they can provide us as far as food and you know companionship or their you know utility to us if we're farmers or whatnot but there's also a thing where we like to look at them and and like you know it's funny i talk about i grew up kind of on a hobby farm where my dad you know kept a lot of animals and we're always trying to make money off them and he got into showing chickens Believe it or not, they actually have shows like they would have dog shows where you show your dog for chickens. Let that one uh, rattle around the brain a little bit. And he would breed for certain things that they were looking for, the judges would look for. And I remember going down with him, he'd take chickens out and he'd hold them and he'd look at them and go, no, this one's not right. This one's foot isn't right. This one doesn't stand right. Blows your mind. So we're obviously very... we're very into aesthetics of our animals and I can definitely see what tarantulas with the amount of colors, the variety of shapes and patterns and everything, how somebody who's not versed on how damaging this can be to the hobby would think, why isn't, why aren't more people doing this? We could have all kinds of crazy looking things. Can you imagine like a B Smithy with blue knees? It would be insane. Unfortunately, that's not how it works, and that's, again, why I try to put out articles like this and try to educate people and try not to freak out when people start talking about why don't you hybridize because I get a couple of those usually a month on my YouTube channel and try to explain why it's not a good idea. And I do think with the recent piece of Ethereum ruling and the other nonsense that's going on that we are in a position now where we can – You know, it'll be a few years, but we'll recognize how bad this could be if these things are hybridized. And to further drive home why this is a bad idea, and this really ties into the Peace Lotharia thing, when I wrote my article, one of the quotes that stood out to me was one from a recent report by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service on the conservation of the genus Peace Lotharia, and they had this to say about captive bred stock. Quote, individuals in the pet trade descend from wild individuals from unknown locations, have undocumented lineages, come from limited stock, and are bred without knowledge or consideration of their genetics. They also likely include a number of hybrid individuals resulting from intentional crosses or unintentional crosses resulting from confusion and difficulty in species taxonomy and identification. This was before the ruling came out about the piece of Lotharia about a year ago, and they were already talking while they were investigating this about the fact that our pet stock is probably filled with hybridized individuals. That's sad to me. That's scary. I'd like to think that I have... You know, what am I keeping now? 12 species of Pisolotheria. Who knows if some of those aren't hybrids? That makes me very sad. I'm sorry. So it's already been identified as a problem within Pisolotheria in the hobby. And then that, I would assume, because a lot of ours also come from Europe, 
that that would also impact our European friends. So this isn't just a U.S. issue. So that's something to really think about. That you know, the although the extent of accidental breeding is unknown, captive bred piece Letheria DNA is already considered to be too potentially polluted to be useful in restocking wild populations because this has been brought up before. Why don't we raise them over here and we can take half of them and sell them and half of them and send them back and let them go in their own countries? Well, we can't because they don't know where they came from. So there's already a bit of a muddled mess as far as those are concerned. And now basically the doors have been closed. They're locked. They're sealed. We're not getting any more in legally. And I'm sure, again, sadly, I have to point out that these rulings tend to mess with the people who are doing things correctly, those who are brown boxing things in, they don't care. It's probably more business for them now, but it's, we've already established that the doors are locked. We're not getting any more in. We have to deal with what we have now. And it's likely that we are starting off already with, you know, polluted stock. So again, if you hear people talking about hybridization, and this is an important one, I think, as far as the hobby is concerned. And I talk a lot about how to approach people and how to teach as opposed to how to admonish and yell at somebody and, and browbeat and make them feel like an idiot. If you find somebody talking about hybridization, stay calm. Take your time. Don't go into it, oh, you're an idiot. We don't need that. Try to explain why we shouldn't hybridize. Point them to articles. Please use my – and again, I'm not sitting, I'm not doing – I make nothing for people reading my articles. So this isn't about promoting me. It's about promoting the information I'm trying to get across. Point them out to my article. Let them read it. Let them decide because I do try to present both viewpoints so that people can see I'm not completely – I understand where they're coming from. I understand where their thought process lies, but unfortunately I don't agree with it and I think it's the wrong thought process. But I try to do it in a nice way. But if you hear people start talking about this, you need to speak up. You need to make sure that they understand why this is not a good idea. I understand you have a beautiful female – um, or nada, and you, you're just kind of toying with the idea of sticking another male pokey in there because you can't get one in your state. I, I do get where you're coming from, but they need to be educated as to why this is a bad idea. And I think in the climate we live in right now, with what's going on in the past few months in the hobby, it's essential that we keep from hybridizing any of our pets and make sure that people are aware of it and don't do it either because we could be looking at a situation several years from now, and this could go well beyond pokies by this point, where we are sitting on a bunch of hybridized animals that no longer you know, have the pure DNA that we were hoping they had while the pure ones are basically decimated in the wild. That's something that I find very depressing to think about. I don't really want to think about it. So we need to police ourselves. We need to be polite. We need to be informative when people do this type of stuff. And again, sometimes they come out and a lot of times it's, you know, people that aren't particularly probably shouldn't be in the hobby in the first place and probably have a hard enough time taking care of themselves. And they're like, oh, I'm going to breed this. I'm going to breed that. And I'm going to make mutant spiders. And they're going to be amazing. Try your best, and then worst case scenario, if they do that and they seem intent on breeding or, God forbid, they've actually done it, keep track of them. Let the hobby know so nobody buys the things because we don't need any more of this stuff in the hobby. Next up, I have a favor to ask of people out there. I had a rather perplexing YouTube comment on my Brachypelma albopelosum. It was an older video I did back in like 2015, and it turned into a, again, going back to the whole trolling thing I did last week. I'm pretty sure this person's trolling or crazy or a combination of both. They seem to go hand in hand. But there was a discussion over the care of B. albopelosum hobby form, or the one that's been sold in the hobby for years, and the newer version, the, you know, 
Bialbopelosum Nicaragua, which is considered to be the pure version. They're a little bit darker, longer hair. I mean, if you see them, there's definite difference in appearance. And I do have a Nicaraguan that I keep the same way. I've had no problems with it so far, so good. However, this person seemed to be convinced that these guys are bloodthirsty animals that if not kept correctly will attack keepers, will bolt out of their enclosures. And again, I, <laughs> I, I'm thinking this person might have been a little bit nuts, but as I've explained before, even when I disagree with somebody, it gets me thinking and I only have my own collection to look at. So although I may have a very well-behaved Nicaraguan tarantula, others out there may be dealing with demons. Is this something I need to look at as far as temperaments? Because obviously B. albopelosum is considered to be like the pinnacle of beginner species tarantulas, and I've often recommended them, and I do point out that the fact that the majority of the ones that are sold is just B. albopelosum, whether it be at your local pet store or online, are the ones we're not quite sure what's in them, and they tend to be the ones that we've talked about for years that are super docile and whatnot. And if you want a Nicaraguan, you have to specifically look for a Nicaraguan. So I would say that, honestly, it's pretty easy to differentiate, so it wouldn't be too difficult to say that my husbandry guides were just for the Bialbopelosum hobby form. But, again, I we got a little back and forth, and I just kind of got sarcastic and ended it and blocked him because he was really kind of just not listening to a word I said. And it, it basically got down to the point that in the wild they deal with um, predators, uh, monsoons and ants and we can't we should replicate that in the hobby and i didn't get that so we're supposed to like let my cat play with my bialbopelosum or dump ants in there and dump water in there i i don't know it was the weirdest conversation ever because i thought it was going to be intelligent and then it took a turn so probably troll but anyway i digress if anybody keeps these species out there have you noticed any behavioral differences from the hobby form are they more high strung are they nasty are they defensive the way he described his they were like obts and his big thing was that I was giving misinformation. I was going to lead a bunch of people to get bit because I was saying that they're docile and the way I kept them was incorrect. So, again, I don't pretend to know everything. I'm always looking to learn new things. And this would be even something if people tell me, enough people tell me they see a difference in behavior on them. I will tweak my care guides or I will most likely pick up some more to kind of observe it myself. So, what do you guys think? Those of you who keep the Nicaraguan form of Bialbopelosum, are you doing anything different? Are you noticing anything different? I'm not with mine, but who knows? I might have gotten a docile one. Obviously, I, I have an OBT I could probably handle, and that's not the norm, and I understand that. So, again, we're going to take this negative experience with this person, but I'm going to turn it into a learning experience because I do want to hear from you guys and hear whether or not your B. Albo Nicaraguans are these bloodthirsty predators, or are they even just a little more high-strung, did you notice, than your regular hobby forms? But I would appreciate anybody would chime in on that. Just even a quick, I, I've talked to a couple people already, and they're like, I've noticed really no difference. But I want to make sure that that's something I address in a YouTube video and in my care guides and in my beginner guides because I will tweak it to differentiate the two. So I appreciate any feedback from anybody. You guys help me out here. Let me know what you see and we'll uh, make those adjustments if need be. And finally, a neat little observation I made about uh, the NNCs, everybody that Followed the last one that I, the last podcast I put up, I talked about how I broke up my NNC communal because I fought two of, caught two of them fighting each other after rehousing them to a bigger enclosure. And I don't think they were playing. It wasn't like a M. Balfouri struggle where they just kind of, you know, pawed each other and then leave. They were, they were, one was trying to eat the other one. I'm pretty positive of that. But one of the things I've noticed is when they were kept together, they were eating machines. They grew, they outgrew that container so quickly. I got them a few months back and they've molted three times already each. 
in that amount of time. They were eating. I'd drop in little red racers. They would take them down. They were eating like pigs. Like they looked like they were about to pop before they molted. Well, it's been about three weeks, two weeks since I've separated them. And I went to go feed them last night, and I realized that two of them haven't eaten a thing since they've been separated. They were thin. They weren't like it wasn't a situation where they were in pre-molt. As a matter of fact, the two had just molted recently when I separated them. So it wasn't that they were in pre-molt, and they weren't touching the prey items. And these were actually two of them, or one of them had prey items that were smaller than what I was feeding them when they were in a group. And basically the roach ran, I kind of pried the roach over to it, and it did a little lift its legs and kind of pawed it away. And I find that odd because they were eating just fine before. So what I did was I took a couple of the roaches, crushed the heads, dropped them in the webs, and left them. Came back an hour later, they were both eating. So I find that very interesting that although I couldn't keep them together any longer because they were starting to prey on another, they were obviously benefiting from the contact and were eating better. They seemed to be much more bold. They were eating no problem. They were eating live prey, no problem whatsoever. Now that I pulled them apart, I'm having to kill things off and feed them to them. So I thought that was a really interesting bit of behavior change. And I was surprised when I took it down and saw that two of them, one of them I believe ate, one of them I'm not so sure about. Two of them I'm positive didn't eat. There were two little roaches running in with them, but ate as soon as I killed them, which would be something in the wild if mom was killing stuff and they were feeding off mom's prey. That would make a lot of sense. So I get that part of it, but it is kind of, you know, I find it very interesting that together they were eating great, growing great. I mean, that's a lot That's a lot of size growth. They were little tiny guys when I got them, and I believe the biggest one now is about an inch and a quarter, an inch and a half. So they're putting on some serious size, but they've just slowed down completely. They're not as hungry they're a little more skittish they're hiding a lot more so interesting behavior there and it leads me to wonder and again i have not seen these guys or observed them in the wild but i know they have been observed in the wild living communally it makes me wonder if feeding off the weaker ones is just part of what they do it sounds like the best time people have keeping these guys communally is when they just leave a sack with mom and let them grow up that way but even people that keep them this way will report there will be some cannibalism it just seems to be part of what they do unlike the Balfouri that don't seem to cannibalize. They seem, it seems to be part of their MO that most of them are going to live and get big, but they do seem to prey on the smaller ones. So maybe that's just a way to wean out the weak. You have to figure if this is a natural behavior, mom lays a sack of eggs and keeps the sack and raises them, and then all the babies stay with mom in a small area, you have to figure that's going to decrease the amount of spiders that are going to get picked off as prey for other animals. Because if they go out, you know, most cases, mom keeps a sack for a little while, they hatch, and then they all go off in their merry way, and they get picked up, they drown, you know, whatever, maybe wash away in a flood, whatever type of caught in the sun types of obstacles that a small sling would have to, you know, survive to reach maturity. But if they're all in the same spot, they don't have to move, they're not exposed as much, you got to figure something could only pick up the stragglers or whatnot, then their own, their probably biggest natural predator would be their siblings. It would make sense to me. And again, this is all conjecture. I don't know, but I, I did see a stark difference in what happened, you know, before when they were kept together and how well they ate and how you know, the size of the prey they were eating and the fact they were hunting down live prey to now I have to pre-kill everything. That I find very fascinating. So I'd be curious to hear if anybody else that had, and I know I've heard from many people because apparently these are the, this is the type of communal that either works or it doesn't. For those of you that ended up breaking your NNC communals apart, did you notice a change in growth rate? 
um, eating behavior, increased skittishness, maybe a propensity not to go at the live food. Did you notice any of these things yourselves? I'd be very curious to hear because, again, I trust my own observations. I like to think that I'm making good observations, but this is just one small sample. This is one, I'm one guy with, you know, four spiders. So what is everybody else seeing as far as these concerned? Because I'd really like to talk about that. And eventually this communal project is, as far as I'm concerned, done. I will continue to update on the babies as they grow. But what can I glean from this? What information can I get? What can I tell people going ahead to expect from it? And I think we could probably put together a much clearer picture of why these work and why they don't work if we all kind of pool our resources here and talk about what we've seen. And finally, I was on my website the other day, and I, I don't talk about this type of stuff often, but it, uh, something I was very proud of. I am nearing 1 million hits on Tom's Big Spiders. And I will eventually do a podcast where I explain the origin of all of this, which I, I've talked to a couple people, you know, separately. But let's just say this all kind of started out as a joke between Billy and I. And to see where it has gone, something that, you know, again, I was passionate about. I love spiders and it all came out of a genuine place. But never in a million years did I think I'd be doing YouTube videos, podcasts, and having this many people access my material. It just blows my mind. I mean, I used to do illustration work. I used to write, like, you know, fiction. And it kind of blows my mind sometimes to think that I found this much of an audience doing something about tarantulas. If you told me that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I would have laughed and walked away. So it's it's humbling. It's amazing. It's very, very cool. It's satisfying. So there's a lot of pride there. But if a lot of people have pointed out, especially with the YouTube where people like to celebrate when they get, you know, 100, view, or 100 subscribers, you know, 1,000 subscribers, whatever, I never usually celebrate anything because to me, I, I approach this almost like teaching. And I don't expect, you know, to do a great lesson and have, you know, 100 students come by and go, oh, congratulations, you've reached, you've taught 100 students how to do two-step equations. Woo, let's have a party. You just don't do that. You just go on and keep teaching. So I don't usually think of it as something like, hey, look at me, I'm doing great. And plus, I, I think sometimes it sounds braggadocious when people come up and start talking about how many followers they have or how many views they have. It, it's that's not me. It's I just like to keep steamrolling. So I hit 10,000 subscribers on YouTube, which I was incredibly happy about, but didn't even realize until my daughter let me know. And I had a lot of people asking, are you going to do something? And I'm like, nah. However, it's been several years and YouTube's been doing great. You know, I did get a lot of subscribers on YouTube. I'm very proud of. And my website that I'm incredibly proud of, the 1 million views just blows my mind. And so I am looking to do some type of contest or celebratory thing, giveaway coming up in the future. So I will be taking ideas. What I want to do ideally is tie together the three main things I have, which would be my YouTube channel my website and obviously the podcast now and do something that ties them all together. So I do have some ideas possibly involving, you know, keywords or whatever going ahead. But if anybody has ideas, I'm, I'm open, open to listening. I, it can't be something huge. It's going to take, you know, a lot of time on my end because I'm struggling to keep up with things as it is. But I would like to do some type of celebration. I think it would be fun. It would be fun to give back to people that have really made this as popular as it is, which again is mind blowing. I get to talk to people all around the world, which is probably the greatest part of this. I had somebody from Germany, France, 
um, South Africa the other day, Netherlands, England. Like I get to talk to so many cool people and find out about you know how the trade is over there and how you know which species they have and whatever. It's just been an amazing experience. So it'll be a fun way I think to give back. So I'll be hoping to get some vendors on board to get some prizes. I probably have some stuff that I can give away as well. And what I'm just going to do is try to really plan the snot out of this so it, it kind of combines everything together. It's fun. And more importantly, I have time to make sure everything gets out to everybody in a timely manner. So again, be looking for that. I might just wait to do it in the beginning of the new year when I'm on vacation because I do have my winter break and it'll give you a little extra time to kind of play around with it and coordinate everything. But, you know, keep a lookout for it. And again, I thank everybody that, you know, drops emails and messages letting me know that I've been helpful and the information I'm providing. That is all the thanks I need. It makes all of this worthwhile. I had somebody the other day that wrote just the most beautiful email thanking me for getting her into the hobby and all the advice and everything. And it just, again, humbling would be the word. So keep a lookout for that. We're going to try to make it fun. Um, any vendors listening, I'll be in contact. I'm going to try to get some things going. And plus I have some stuff of my own I can do. I just, the big reason I don't do a lot of giveaways and stuff is trying to coordinate getting down to the post office or FedEx for shipping is very, very difficult for me. So I try to avoid that. But uh, we'll see. Going ahead, we'll come up with something fun. So anybody that's got ideas, please feel free to drop me a line or, or put in the comments. I'll be reading them, and we'll go from there. So as always, thanks so much for everybody for taking the time to listen. Again, I'm still tickled that people find this entertaining, and, and I will say the podcast has really taken off. My numbers now for listeners is, is quite respectable, and I'm again, I have all of you to thank for it. Um, as always, if you want to comment, I'm going to post this on Facebook. I promise I'll do it this time. I always forget. And just to let people know what you do is when you create the podcast, when I create the podcast on my end and post it, there's a thing where it says share. And then I click share and I put the Facebook and sometimes I get caught up doing something else and forget to do it. So I will try to do it this time because obviously when I ask for comments and then don't bother posting it up on Facebook, it makes it kind of a pain in the butt for everybody. So I apologize. So we'll get it up on Facebook. But again, you can find me at tomsbigspiders.com. You can find me on YouTube. I've got to get a video ready in a minute. And uh, that should about do it for today. So hopefully you enjoyed it. And I'll catch all of you guys next time. I've got a dog in the background that's going to start licking again any minute. So I'm going to try to button this up before you have to hear that. <laughs>